Perfect. So there's one of the big things with um, our institute, uh, Librium Research Institute, so it's a not-for-profit. It's focused on this next-gen science called agent-based modeling. So we had been, uh, you know, the science has been around for a while, and it was obviously very simplified in the 70s and 80s, started to get some legs in the late 90s, but it was, you know, you have, you know, the simple uh, uh, prey-predator model, right, where you've got the deer and the wolf, and you, you create an algorithm for the deer, and you create an algorithm for the wolf, and you let it run the simulation, and those interactions basically create an output for a balancing of this ecosystem. Fast forward uh, from the 90s to the mid-2010s, you then had machine learning models. So instead of having an algorithmic approach to understanding an agent's behavior, you could model the behavior using machine learning models to build a more sophisticated model of what that would do. Where the problem ended up being is, it's one thing to simulate the behavior of uh, you know, a deer and a wolf and how it would interact with an environment. It's another thing when you're talking about billions of human agents and their interaction between each other and it being a, you know, a computa- exponential computational problem, even for machine learning, where we think still it's going to be the 2030s, maybe the 2040s, um, if it gets so late, even on this exponential uh, curve of being able to do these machine learning based uh, neural network models of an agent, human or otherwise, and their ability to create interaction and predict the behavior of interaction. So we do a lot of this in, in our business because I've got customer service reps, I've got technology that automates messaging, chatbots, but then we have all these other agents, they refer their family and friends to get a loan with us. So there's a lot of agent interactions and we build these simulation models. I'm wondering, um, you know, from your perspective, I know um, agent simulation and simulation of environments, you know, is getting more computationally friendly and is becoming more realistic. Is there things that you're seeing in the marketplace that's moving in that direction? Uh, And you may have heard of DeepMind. We actually had one of the top people um, and creators of DeepMind on uh, at the Institute uh, talking uh, uh, last year. Any thoughts on, you know, Carnegie Mellon or the future or some of the PhD programs that you may have seen or? Yeah, I can't tell you about the commercial world because I'm not following following products in that domain. Uh, But there are all kinds of synergies between, for example, the Robotics Institute and the Machine Learning Department, which are two components of the seven component School of Computer Science at, uh, at CMU. Um, and one uh, very famous project was robotic soccer. Uh, there happened to be uh, international competitions among robotic soccer teams. Uh, and so you, you come and you deploy your robots and they deploy their robots and we see at the end of the game who scored the most goals. And so um, this is an example of uh, real-time agent cooperation because all the players in the soccer field need to know where the other players are so they can determine where to pa- when and where to pass to them. Okay, um, So they're communicating all the time. They're, they're, they're being made aware of where their teammates are and where the enemy are. The, oppo- the opposing team. And of course, the opposing team is doing exactly the same thing to them, anticipating where lanes might open up that need to be closed so that a, a pass can't occur. Uh, and so um, a team uh, that was led by Manuela Veloso, uh, who's now the chief of AI at Morgan, 
uh, she went Ameri took emeritus status from CMU, went to Wall Street, uh, won the international soccer robotic soccer competition. And so what we're seeing is the application of various different technologies all coming together in synergy uh, to solve problems. It seems to me that what, would, what would, one would love to do is to build the universal model of everything. Uh, that is to understand exactly how humans work, um, exactly how economic forces uh, impact things, exactly how physical laws like gravity and things like that uh, influ influence the, the behavior of people and people and things. And so we have this percolating model of the world. And if, you, if you're interested in what would be the effect of, for example, a massive flood in Germany, okay? And you toss that into the system and it predicts all kinds of things, like which kinds of supply chains are gonna be interrupted, prices of what are gonna go up, um, uh, et cetera. It would be wonderful if we had such a thing. Problem is, building models like that is difficult. One of the reasons it's difficult is that in many cases, we only have experimental data about how things behave. We're not able to write down equations. Example, the three-body problem. Three-body problem, still not solved, right? There, there, there is no equation of motion that, that predicts the movement of three bodies. On the other hand, nature has no problem in simulating it. And simulation, simulation programs have no problem in simulating it. So we don't need to have exact formulas for things as long as we have enough data. So that goes back to the data science and how do you process mass, mass quantities of data. It's impractical, I think, to even dream of building the kind of model that I was, uh, that I was suggesting. The reason for that has to do with the uh, hyper-exponential blow-up in computation time required to do anything. But we all know that approximation is sufficient. We don't have to optimize. We don't need exact answers. And so finding approximation methods is going to be a major factor in these in the multi-agent systems that you're, that you're talking about. So one of the things which kind of gets on the edge, which is where it's academic and exciting, is quantum computing. Now, I hate using these buzzwords. In fact, at uh, my old office, we had a whole list of words you're not allowed to use in the office, blockchain, no. AI, ML, um, quantum. But you know, I've worked with um, some of the guys at D-Wave in Canada, and I've seen what Intel before COVID was proposing for some, I think it was like a 56 qubit architecture for computation. Are you guys seeing uh, any, I guess not commercialization, but is the ag academic environment, uh, and I know it's slightly removed from computer science, but obviously those of us who are computer science are really excited to get our hands on uh, some architecture out there. And I think that Microsoft's building their own language, waiting for a lot of chip processing to come out. Um, you know, for five milliseconds, Google said they had uh, uh, was a quantum supremacy, and then that was kind of defeated. But um, any any thoughts or perspectives mm. on on where that directional technology is going from an academic perspective? Okay, so it's an arms race, and uh, every week or two, I see another article about some company or some country or some university claiming quantum supremacy and that, that we've managed to build uh, n qubits, and the next week we get two n qubits, uh, et cetera. Um, there are some serious issues 
in building large quantum computers, uh, one of them being the inherently probabilistic nature of quantum mechanics, and so that the computations are inexact, the idea being that if you repeat them enough times, the probability of getting a correct answer approaches one, but isn't one. Another is that the number of different quantum algorithms that are known is very small. You can count them, you can count them on, on two hands. And the, you know, the big one everybody's excited about is factoring, because once, once you do factoring, you know, yep. RSA, RSA goes away as a, um, as a security mechanism. <clears throat> but there's a lot more to the world than factoring. Uh, and so we don't know how to do, for example, we don't know how to run um, a, a quantum simulation of a neural network. And so if you wanted to build neural networks that had huge numbers of nodes, I mean, you know, the, the biggest ones these days now have, what, hundreds of billions of nodes. Um, so let's go to hundreds of trillions. How do we simulate hundreds of trillions of neural network nodes on a quantum computer? We, we don't know how to do that now. And so I think a tremendous amount of work needs to go into the physical building of quantum computers. And a tremendous amount of work needs to go into the theoretical underpinnings of what can you really do with them. Sure, it's easy to imagine with superposition of states that you ought to be able to do things that are classically impossible. And, and that's probably true. The question is how, right? It's very tangible. Yeah, I, I think I'm uh, really excited at least to see the progress. I think everybody has their doomsday type scenarios. I'm not really of that uh, thought. I think that there, there's two sides to that equation. But it also brings up, you know, I think recently in the news um, and, you know, we're a technology company, but we're also a lender and we're constantly uh, being trying to be penetrated by um, cyber attacks constantly. And obviously, I think it was a few weeks ago, uh, there was thousands of small businesses that had ransomware attacks all throughout the United States. And, you know, there was political back and forth with who knows what's ever going to happen. Uh, uh, and I've, I've worked with a lot of the intelligence agencies and, you know, FBI in the United States. Uh, and uh, they're trying to figure out how to combat this problem. You know, what's Carnegie Mellon doing on the um, cybersecurity side? And uh, what's kind of the state of affairs is this? That's another arms race, right? That that will never end. Uh, and only will get a bigger and bigger uh, impact as the future comes. Uh, when we used to watch these movies uh, about hackers and stuff like that in the 70s, 80s, and 90s. And now that's all the war that we almost see on the news every day. Yep, it's certainly spy versus spy, and it, it, can, ne it, it can never end, of course. Um, what we're doing about it is, uh, I think, on two fronts. So one is in the School of Computer Science, and particularly in the engineering school, um, there people are designing the next internet, a, a safer, secure internet. Um, in terms of real practical considerations, such as detecting um, malware attacks, um, most of that work is done in what's called uh, the SEI, the Software Engineering Institute. Not to be confused with the Institute for Software Research, which is a department that I'm a faculty member in. Um, the, the SEI uh, is Pentagon funded. Uh, it's a component of Carnegie Mellon University and pays for a lot of our overhead, but most of the work that it does is confidential. So it's separated from the academic 
part of CMU. We don't do secret work. The, the, the professors at CMU do not do secret work as part of their research. They may do it as consultants, but not, not as part of the university. So no student is ever inveigled into, into working on, on warlike project. Um, the, uh, there's no such restriction at the Software Engineering Institute. <clears throat> and in fact, uh, security clearances are required to go into certain, certain areas there. And they are very actively working directly with the Pentagon and with Symantec and you know the big the big security companies on uh, finding and diagnosing uh, diagnosing security threats. Unfortunately, because of the nature of the work, they don't say much about it. Uh, so I can't tell you what what they're doing, but you might you might want to interview the head of the head of the S, of the SEI. There's almost a blood-brain barrier. There, there are some people who, who work on in both CMU and the SEI. That is the academic part of CMU and SEI. Uh, but in general, there, there's very little crosstalk between them because of the nature, because uh, of the nature of the work. On the other hand, uh, you know, uh, there was an old adage in building software systems that the first one you build to throw away, right? Because that's what tells you all the mistakes that you made in your design. Um, the problem is the internet wasn't built that way. Uh, this is the one we built and we haven't thrown it away yet. Uh, and the, the day may come when we have to throw it away because its security problems may not be patchable. A fundamentally new architecture might be might be required. Yeah, it's exciting. I think I've seen, you know, across all the tier one uh, computer science programs, I, I don't know a single one that doesn't have cybersecurity as a uh, component of education. And and that war just is only getting worse. Oh, it's both. Go ahead. Well, we have a whole institute for it at at, the, at CMU. In the academic part, there there's a component that studies cybersecurity. But again, it's academic study. Absolutely. And you know, I think like it becomes more complicated. You talk about like you know security clearances and stuff. It becomes more and more complicated as the the uh, combatant may or may not be a government, may or may not be other sovereign entities, and the the politics and the geopolitics are now being fully integrated into cybersecurity, and how we deal with it both offensively and defensively uh, will have to at some point become a geopolitical conversation. When you say how we deal with it, how are we dealing with it? When when every few weeks, uh, tens of thousands of companies. Uh, uh, get attacked successfully. I'm not sure we're dealing with it. I think we're we're sitting around worrying about it. Yeah. Yeah, yeah and I think the only uh, the only solution I've heard is not a solution. It's buy more insurance. <laughs> and uh, hope to God that you don't have a uh, major loss like an Equifax or another uh, uh, attack that shuts down everything. But I think it's also you know so I've been like I said lecturing for you know not quite two decades. But um, the makeup of my student population in in grad school is shifted, and you know I'm I'm very apolitical. I, I'd say you know I travel constantly around the world. I have friends that are Chinese and Russian and Indian and all other parts of the world. Um, but a lot of the U.S. companies get more and more scared when students that are from a geopolitical standpoint at conflict. I mean, theoretically, the um, the institution of the university and education is completely separate from that. But there's been cases, unfortunately, where th that hasn't been the case and technology and intellectual property has been stolen or other people working for. So 
when you when you look on a forward basis, so my students in the QCF program, when I'm lecturing, uh, I I may have had a, a few white kids, uh, no black kids, uh, a bunch of Indians and Chinese. Now it's 90% Chinese students in my classes, uh, many of them with multiple master's degrees, uh, a few Indians, and that's about it. And it's been that way teaching class for almost a decade. N nothing positive or negative about the countries, but where does that put you know, the academic institutions that are supporting students who are graduating um, and, and getting jobs out in the marketplace when there's such a political pushback um, and does that affect anybody, or do, does academia uh, does academia not really have to take that into consideration? Well, we certainly experienced uh, a very similar phenomenon. For years, um, the majority of my students were Chinese. Um, in last year, when people applied to my graduate program in AI and innovation, we had a huge drop in the number of Chinese applicants, huge. Largely, I think, because of President Trump's policies and animosity yep. toward uh, yep. uh, Chinese students, and also the blocking of Chinese students from certain universities believed to be affiliated with the Chinese military. That, strangely, was counterbalanced by a huge increase in the number of Indian applicants. Hmm. In fact, the one almost perfectly balanced the other out, and we had almost exactly the same number of total applicants this for this entering this you know entering in September that we had a year ago. In fact, our applications have been flat at about 850 for four years in a row, huh. plus or minus five. It just hasn't varied from that. I'm expecting that this coming year it'll go way up again, because I think with the Biden administration, a lot of Chinese students will return, return to the fray. Um, so we have a, a changing mixture of uh, national origins and ethnicities. Um, but one thing remains constant, and that is, a minority of Americans. Yeah, unfortunately. And, and the question is, what what does that say about the United States and the priorities of students in the United States as to what they're willing to study? It says bad things. Um, China, of course, announced that it intends to be world dominant in AI by 2030. And one mechanism that they have for doing that is sending all their students over here to learn AI and at the same time, our Americans are not learning AI because there are too few of them. And when the Chinese go back to China, we will indeed uh, have have trained them. Yeah, brain drain. Yeah. And so, uh, was it Khrushchev who said that uh, the Americans will sell us the rope with which we will hang them? <laughs> yeah, it, it, it's, a, yeah. It's, a, it's very unfortunate. I mean, it's uh, not only is it is it a true statement, but it's a growing statement. Um, you know, and you know, I, I had an employee who had graduated from Emory. Uh, she did a finance degree, but it wasn't a STEM degree. Uh, and she is now, unfortunately, back in South Korea. She was top of her class at Emory, and I think uh, there's definitely a major disconnect in the policy of how do you get the top students. Uh, you know, at our top schools, not able to even stay in the country um, because they can't get sponsorship. I think that's just that's a whole nother conversation. But I also think like whenever it comes to competition, what, what I've seen, though, is um, with now. Sure, we're in a Zoom era now. We take it for granted, whether it's my Microsoft Teams, which we're using. But, um, you know, I've got 
you know, hundreds of employees in India that I do collaboration with. I'm doing, like I said, I've got team members in Costa Rica and Panama, all throughout the United States. And even pre-COVID, we were a semi-in-person, mostly virtual uh, company back then. Um, and it, it's only grown more so from that standpoint. Does the United States have the advantage of being able to have maybe the top creative minds that stay here, which you don't need high percentage you need a few really great people to kind of drive the um the 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 innovation and creativity um uh over the long run and that's unfortunately that's kind of how it's been for decades uh it, it, it's not a recent phenomenon it's been like this since the 90s yeah so i've never bought into the doctrine that says that americans are creative and nobody else is <laughs> uh, so uh, we satisfied ourselves for a long time with the suggestion that the Chinese educational system is rigid. Uh, it, it, uh, uh, basically, it rewards uh, followers, not leaders. Um, it doesn't like people who think differently from the others. That's inconsistent with communist doctrine, for example. Yeah. Um, and it's all nonsense, okay? There are plenty of creative thinkers in every corner of the globe, everywhere. Absolutely. Um, it, the, the idea now, it, there's no question, of course, that the rewards and punishments of a culture can suppress sure. uh, one's instinct to create that. But that doesn't mean that the instinct isn't there. And so I have not found that that Americans are creatively brilliant and people from outside the United States aren't. I just I've never, yeah, the equation's I've, not there anymore. I've never actually I've never I've never seen that. Now, what we're doing. Uh, by admitting students from all over the place, um, we're treating the world as if uh, everybody's an individual and nations don't exist. The idea being that if everybody feels that way, then national boundaries really don't mean anything and that the innovations in any field are going to be equally shared with every with everybody else. Exactly. <clears throat> what has interfered with that, uh, of course, is the attitude of the nations from which these people come. Yep. Uh, and so uh, the platonic ideal of let's all get together in a room and the best ideas are going to be shared among everybody, um, that ideal may be tarnished uh, by, by politics. But ultimately, uh, the progress of science depends on people's people ex exercising their, their greatest possible creativity. Absolutely. And, and, and so if the other problem comes from the political domain, then we're going to have to ask politicians to solve that part of the problem. But I, I don't think, for example, it would be wise for a university, for example, the great AI programs to stop taking Chinese applicants because sure. we, don't, we don't want China to become supreme in AI. Yeah, that's that's just a lose, lose, losing errand. Uh, absolutely agree with that. So here's a slightly different topic with the students. So. Obviously, you know, so I didn't actually lecture during COVID because for me personally, I love the interaction. I love us thinking creatively. And when I started lecturing and I had my boxes of students on the screen, I just lost so much uh, ability to have that creative thought and creative discussion and almost like a um, interactive ability. Now, we have to do what we have to do. Um, and even in our company, like I said, we're mostly been remote, just generally speaking, pre-COVID. But, you know, one of the things I do is I fly all of our main people into Atlanta for in-person, usually two, three day of basically going through ideas. 
now that you know a lot of COVID restrictions are being lifted, minus some of the stuff on the Delta variant stuff, where where does academia sit in terms of creativity and having physical in-person classes? What do we lose? What do we gain? Uh, and is it similar from that standpoint where that creative thought and, and discussion makes a difference being in person? Yeah, I taught a lot during COVID and I, I didn't do it in person. <clears throat> I taught uh, two courses at CMU and one course for the University of Hong Kong, uh, all completely remote during COVID time. And um, fundamentally, it has to do with the, the, the population size that you're talking about. I, I ran a research project, or independent study project with four students. That was completely successful. We were able to meet. We all saw each other on the screen large enough that we could actually see people's expressions on their faces. Uh, and it was almost indistinguishable from being in the same room. Uh, when I taught to the University of Hong Kong, I had 80 students. I couldn't see individual faces. I was talking at a wall. Yep. And I really didn't like it. And if yep. you if you uh, talk to actors, um, many movie actors will tell you that they prefer the stage uh, because that's where they get the feedback. That's where they get the energy. They see how their audience is reacting to them and they can tailor their presentation to that. When you're doing 80 takes in front of a movie camera, you can't do that. The only person that gives you feedback is the director. And so um, I'm really looking forward to being in the physical classroom again, uh, starting at, at the end of August this year. Um, that said, we're never gonna go back to the old normal. Yeah. Uh, for example, every classroom at CMU has been Zoom outfitted, <clears throat> which means that even when we're doing physical classes, we're going to Zoom record everything because the students have reported that it's incredibly useful to them to be able to review possibly multiple times going over the same the same point in a lecture that they didn't that they didn't understand. Many of them find it useful so they can cut class, for example. They don't have to come to class because they can always they can always review the video. Um, and also it provides a, uh, a core of recorded lectures that faculty can use one to the other. Um, because I, I can't physically attend a lot of courses that I would like to. Absolutely. Uh, for example, they may occur at the same time that I'm teaching. Sure. Um, if the other lecturer is recording his quantum uh, computing lectures, then, then I, can, I can view those. So it creates intellectual capital. Uh, by by using uh, Zoom technology. Um, but the idea of uh, lecturing to 80 people uh, over Zoom, it's, I don't want to say completely useless, but it, it certainly doesn't have the advantages of, of the, 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 the crackling excitement of being in a, in a room and facing all of those questions. I, I found that people were far less inclined to ask questions over Zoom. 100%. Than they would be in a, in a real classroom where they can yeah. come with each other. And, Did you understand that? I don't <laughs> I think that actually reminds me of seeing in, uh, is it Ferris Bueller's Day Off where uh, they have all the recorders in the class and the students recording at every one of the tables with the recorders. And then even the professor at the very end is uh, playing back his lecture on a recording uh, to the other recorders. Or maybe that was another movie about college. But, you know, I, I definitely agree. And, you know, I also think, you know, it's a little bit different 
department, but the business school and, you know, like, you know, you know, Harvard Business School, you know, case study method and, you know, you've got Tepper. Um, it's a very intimate interaction and there's a lot of thinking and creativity that goes. So it's good to hear that. And I kind of agree that the small scale format of a few people or several people, you can still have the creativity and the discussion whenever you can see the screen and there's not that many people and you can see all the interactions. But I definitely agree that so they asked me if I wanted a lecture for last fall uh, and this spring. And I was like, guys, you know, there's 30, 40 people in a class. Uh, exact same experience. Nobody was asking questions. It's hard to read people. People would turn off their video. So you don't even know if they're paying attention. And it just the, the, the dynamic is just completely different from that standpoint. But I also agree on the flip side. Uh, so I teach class uh, even at, at my company uh, and to all of our employees. But at the same time, they all want to go back and review content. We have all of our senior leadership teach class uh, every single month. And the review concept makes a lot of sense. But the interaction concept, it's very hard. So we ended up um, creating two formats where it's more like this, where we have an interactive dialogue that's recorded. But um, when we were doing in-person hybrid model, we would have more questions and interaction with the people in, in the audience. So we had almost two types of recording. The only reason why I say that is, where do you think the future of education is going? And, you know, obviously we've had the MOOCs, we've got, you know, Carnegie Mellon has pioneered and George Tech has, you know, we have a master's degree program that you can do it all online. It is, you know, when my, I've got four kids, all not teenage daughters yet <laughs> that are, they're about to be um, and they're going to be looking at schools um, sometime soon and you know the the tier one schools you know they're not going to go away it's like a tier one golf course the best golf courses are going to stay around the rest of them are going to go bankrupt um, but is the future of even the tier one school evolving is it what is Carnegie Mellon over the next five ten years what's that vision obviously can't look maybe that far out but is it in class with zoom with interaction and more any ideas or thoughts or what oh. are you guys seeing oh yeah i have a lot of ideas and my colleagues don't agree with them um so um i love lecturing i've done it for many years i'm good at it in the year 2000 i gave 500 lectures wow that's an average of two every working day for the, <laughs> for the entire year i'm good at it the problem is that lecturing is too easy for me and it's too easy for the students because the students just sit there. Yep. Some of them listen, some of them eat, some of them sleep, some of them read email, some of them have earbuds and they listen to music. It's too easy for them. They believe that all they have to do is show up, get marked as present, and they've done what they have to do. And so I want courses that require investment by both the professor and the student. And the one way you get investment in the students is you make them work. You make them learn by doing instead of learning by listening. Yep. And the whole Absolutely. nature of lecture, right? It comes from Latin, it's reading, right? The lecturer used to read from a book, okay? And so when you read, people listen. It's learning by listening. It doesn't get embraced by the student. So for 18 years, I ran a program that had no courses. An entire degree program, it's the only one of its kind, an entire degree program that had no courses, zero. 
Um, and what we did was it was a program in e-business technology. And the idea was that when the students arrived, it was a 12 month program. We had to go no summer vacation, yet, total 12 months. When the students arrived, we, we gave them the, the surprise news that they're not really students, but they are employees of a fictitious e-business consulting company. And they have a manager whom they will never meet, but they will get memos from him describing clients and describing a client problem. And they will have two weeks as a team in order to develop a solution to the client's problem. Then they will have to present that solution. And right after that's done, they're going to get another memo from their manager about a different client with a different problem. And they're going to have to solve that one. And they did this, we made them do this 16 different times. And four times during the year, we would permute the teams so people were working with di different sets of people all the time. After that was all over, the 16 of these things, there was an artificiality to it. And that is that they knew that the companies weren't real, although the companies actually were real, but the problems yeah. that we gave them were not, sure. were not real problems that those companies were attacking. And so they did not know, we did not know, and their sponsors like their parents did not know whether they would really be able to do this in practice. So we had a practicum in which we asked outside companies to fund problems yep. which the students would work on for 14 weeks. And they had to do exactly the same thing that they did previously, except it was a real problem of real interest to a paying company. And that was the proof of the pudding. And so they went through an entire 12 months of school without taking a course. And it was incredibly effective. And what I've done in the courses that I teach is I've tried to convert them as much as possible yep. where the students are learning by doing work instead of learning by listening to me. Because I like to hear myself talk too much. And some of them like to hear me talk because when I'm talking, they don't have to do anything. They can just sit there and listen. And when they're doing that, they're not learning. There, there are all kinds of, of psychological studies that show that if you give a lecture and then you give a quiz to the students as they're leaving the lecture room, you give them a quiz as to what they've learned, they will typically retain about 10% of the material. Yeah, okay. Now, by exam time, unless they cram and review, their retention has gone down to about 3%. Now, there's no industrial process in the world that would live with a yield of 3%. Okay. And so something is fundamentally wrong with the process. Oh, no, by the way, if you ask them a year later, it's down to 1%. Absolutely. Too many distractions now. Now, what that proves is that learning by listening does not cause learning to occur. It causes time to be wasted. And so the skills that we teach students in universities <clears throat> are essentially useless. The thing that students are best at after they've been through university and graduate school is taking courses. They're really champs at taking courses because they've done that more than anything else during their, during their university experience. Then they go and get a job and they never take a course again. And so why have we spent all of this time training them to take courses? Okay, let's look at individual courses. What do we do in individual courses? What do we train them to do? We train them to do homework and pass exams. They get really good at passing exams. Then they go to a job and they never have another exam. So why are we training them to pass exams 
when that is not the skill that's required for them in the rest of their lives. Okay. Now I say stuff like this to my colleagues and they look like, you know, Seamus, you're just getting too old here. Okay. Something's not right. Uh, because why? Because it's always been done that way. Yep. All of my colleagues are used to doing it that way. They know how to, how to create an exam. Students maybe don't love the exams, but at least they're familiar with the format. And so they're nervous when you give them a course that doesn't have an exam or a course that doesn't have homework. It, it, it bothers them. Why? Because we've trained them. We've made a, a compact with them, which is I'm going to I'm going to give you a textbook. And at the end of every chapter, there are going to be some problems. And there's a promise that if you mastered the material in this chapter, you will be able to do the problems at the end of the chapter and so on all the way through the book. And there's a promise that if you learn all the material in the course, you will be able to answer all the questions on the final exam. OK, and you know what happens if you violate that promise? The students scream. They say, it's not fair. OK, then they get out into a job and they're given a problem and there's no promise. There's no material that they've been given that is guaranteed to get them to the solution of the problem. And it's not fair, but they eventually realize that, you know what? What's not fair is that my school did not prepare me for this. Mm -hmm. That's the part that's not fair. And, and so I don't do that. What I try to do is ease the transition as much as possible between graduate school and a job. I try to make our training as much like being at a job as possible. And so they're completely used to it when they when they actually get to a job. But there's there's this belief that academia is pure and it has its methodology and that if we do our thing right, then when the students get out, they'll be fine in a job. Well, it's not true. Uh, one of the things you need to do at a job is work as part of a team. Nobody works alone. Yeah. But effort in a university is solo because you take an exam, you get an individual grade. Therefore, it even hurts you to help your colleagues yeah. because they're your competitors. If there are only a certain number of A pluses to be given out, you want to get one of them. We don't train them to work in teams. And so the first day on the job, they don't have a clue what to do when they're put in a room with five other people and, and, they, and they have to figure out who's good at what, how are we going to divide the labor, et cetera. And then how is my management going to evaluate me? Like my professor evaluated me with, a, with an examination. And how am I going to be evaluated in the job? And so the, it's very strange. Um, it, it's the difference between being in the womb and being in the real world. Yeah. So what happens when the calf is born? It has to learn very quickly. It has to learn how to walk very fast because it didn't get any walking preparation when it was in the womb. Okay. <laughs> the problem is that in, instead of lasting months, our womb lasts for over a decade when students are in school. And they're completely unprepared to walk on their four legs when they get out of the university. And so I don't like it. And I think that, no. that, that all academic institutions need to reevaluate what they're actually doing. Now, that kind of training is, per is perfect for people who are going to become professors. Sure, absolutely. Because they're going to do exactly the same thing for the rest of their life that they did in university. But if they're not going to be a professor, it's not the right preparation for them. It also, you know, um, reminds me of, um, so I, I've been a pilot for uh, eight, nine years, and the learning process is all about making mistakes without dying. Mm -hmm. <laughs> and that's all we do. Well, you know, it, it's, it, it's constant. 
it's the ultimate learning by doing, right? Absolutely. You, you, you got to get up there and fly. You know, and it, it's interesting, Bill, because so we've got a huge amount when you do IFR or instrument only um, rated, uh, uh, you know, pilot training. I've got a lot of books mm -hmm. and the expectation is I got to memorize it. Uh, I've got uh, friends who are great academically. They can read through it all, memorize it all, the rote memory, and then regurgitate it on the oral exam and regurgitate it on the online exam. You know, but, um, you know, I don't have time. I already, I've got four kids. I've got hundreds mm -hmm. of employees, a lot of fun nonprofits that I work with. But being able to go through the physical experience and then combine it with the actual material and content and the lecture allows me to connect the dots between what is it that I'm doing and why is it being done that way? And so there, I 100% I agree that there is this like cyclical nature between education and reality. So I, I'm really excited to hear that because a lot of the concepts that you know we teach, even in our own company, uh, we shifted away from things that are ideas and cool in the future to what are we about to do in the next three months and how can we apply this technology to solve these problems? So there's a sense of urgency like, oh my goodness, I better pay attention because this stuff is being implemented right now. And then I've seen great colleges that have started to embrace that. Um, I remember one of, there was a bunch of kids in the industrial engineering department uh, who their capstone project was they were interviewing CEOs of companies to do research projects just like you talked about. So I think I think comp, uh, you know universities are starting to get the catch the drift, uh, especially you know schools that are more pragmatic and, and are going to get students to not be academic. They're going to be more in in industry to engage with industry more, but also do what you know other companies can't do, which is a lot of the research and understanding and figuring out problems behind the scenes that um, you know they're not able to do themselves. So let's talk about you know just you know, wrapping it up here, talk about the, um, you know, student experience. I, I did get to check out the great racquetball court set, Carnegie Mellon, when I was doing my walkthrough there, the, the phenomenal chefs at the uh, uh, different dorm rooms, the, the, you know, a lot of the history of some, some of the greatest professors, period. Uh, and like I said, family friends and family members that uh, have not only attended, but were professors and, you know, heads of departments there. Um, what is the uh, you know Carnegie Mellon experience for those in our audience? And to give you context, we have about half industry and about half students, uh, and they're literally from all over the world. We have about 50, 60 countries that are represented that come to our programming. There's thousands of people that come and check out our programming and lectures and stuff like that. So for those of the students out there that may be undergrad going to grad school or looking at different programs, can you tell us a little bit about you know, maybe how is your capstone project? What are the students going through for graduating? What's the edge that Carnegie Mellon has? And you know, raise your Carnegie Mellon flag and brag about what's what's awesome about CMU these days. Yeah, we don't have enough time for me to do all the bragging that I would love to do about about Carnegie Mellon. Um, so I'll I'll just tell you a quick anecdote. So I have a uh, uh, I have a very small family. And uh, I have uh, one. I have one second cousin, uh, and uh, his partner. Uh, he, he and a partner run a, a talent agency in New York City, and one of their kids was interested in in CMU. And so they contacted me saying, you know, can you help? Can you write a letter? 
is it okay if, if we come and visit you and talk about CMU, et cetera? And so I took them around the university, and then of course the, there are people uh, who give tours of the university. And at the end of the day, he and his parents, and it, it's always a tense thing, right? Because the kid's there and the parents have goals and expectations for the kid. And sometimes the kid is fully embracing them and sometimes is rebelling. Um, he, he came back to my office and, and he said, of the experience, what he saw that day, he said, these are my peeps, meaning I fit in completely right here. Now, not everybody does. And what he meant by his peeps are the kind of geeky people who were really interested in technology and proud of being interested in tech, proud of being interested in technology. Um, the university experience tends to be stressful, but not because we apply the pressure, because the students themselves are so heavily self-motivated. And so uh, I keep telling people when they come here, everybody is smart. The a priori probability when you see somebody that he's smarter than you is one in two, okay? Uh, and it's the same thing that I tell them about the professors. I say, the professors are not smarter than you are. They've just, they know more and they've done more, but they're not smarter. You can become just like them. And the university, it's, I've been associated with a number of academic institutions. My father was a department head at New York University. Uh, and so when I was a kid, I had experience with professors and deans and things like that. Um, CMU is, is non-siloed in the sense that if, if any two faculty in any two departments want to set up a joint research project, all it requires is a handshake. There's no formality whatsoever to it. If you want to set up a degree program, there's some degree of formality to that, but there's no barrier to it. There's nobody who's saying, oh, that's our stuff and you can't do that, et cetera. We just don't have it. And the School of Computer Science in particular is so large, as I said, that if you can dream up a topic in computer science, we've got five people who are already doing it. That's not possible at small uh, computer science departments where there might be 30 faculty, for example. By the way, there's no department in the School of Computer Science that's as small as that. And yet sometimes that's the size of the entire computer science department at another, at another institution. So if you want to go to somebody and have them and talk to them about a particular topic that you're interested in, you can't do it at many other institutions. But at CMU, you have a choice of, of whom you'd like to go talk to because there, because there are so many of them. And eventually the, the size creates synergism. It's true, it makes it difficult to know everybody. I, don't, I certainly don't know all the faculty. I wouldn't recognize them if I uh, stepped over them. Um, on the other hand, if I want to seek somebody out, it's trivial. I go to the directory and I get their email address and boom, you know, we're, we're in contact. So nothing is off limits it, it, because there's no field that we don't have somebody who's an expert at. And you, don't, you just don't get that somewhere else. And it's true of a number of, of other places in CMU, particularly the engineering school, uh, also drama, which after years of competing with Yale Drama School, uh, several years ago, moved into the number one slot uh, in best drama school. So we, we have some isolated real peaks of, uh, of quality uh, at CMU. We also have tremendous cooperation from the city and the state. So there are many uh, places that universities live 
where the relationship between town and gown is not so uh, friendly. Um, that's particularly true in what are called what you would call college towns, where essentially the biggest thing in the town is the college, like State College Pennsylvania, where Penn State is. We don't have that. Pittsburgh is big enough that CMU certainly wouldn't be dominant. Even the University of Pittsburgh, which is far larger, is not dominant. And so the city's universities have become a point of pride for the city. And we get immense cooperation from city agencies, from city businesses, et cetera. They, they, they don't despise the fact that we're here. They love the fact that we're here. And that creates a, a different mood. You know, when, when you go around town and people look up to you because you're a student at CMU, instead of looking down at you because you're a member of a noisy frat, uh, it, it, it's just a very different atmosphere. We have frats. I don't want to I don't want to say we don't have we've got them. Uh, it, it's just that they don't have a reputation for, uh, for example, hazing and destructiveness and, uh, and things like that. So the, the residential experience at CMU is quite fine. The, the universities in Pittsburgh mostly are located in residential neighborhoods, not in the downtown. And so there's plenty of, of literal residential housing. I mean, you can rent apartments in, in houses rather than in you know, large high rise apartments. That's very, it's, it's very pleasant living. Perfect. Well, I last year was probably the first time in uh, a decade that I had not attended a Pittsburgh Steelers game and uh, gone and visited my uh, hometown. Uh, but I will definitely be up there. I've actually had employees and students do grad school both at Tepper and in different departments at uh, Carnegie Mellon. So I always love CMU. Um, and I, I think I was going to do a double major, not only in computer science, but uh, performance music. Uh, you guys have one of the best uh, performance music programs in the entire country. Measures up to uh, even Juilliard. So I love that program there as well. And uh, really excited to come up there, shake your hand in person, Professor. Uh, it was really wonderful to have you uh, on board. And uh, I'm sure we'll uh, send you more information as the uh, the years go on. And we try to create this collective, really, of uh, top people in the world in different industries, both academic and private sector, around, you know, not only, uh, you know, computer science, artificial uh, intelligence and machine learning models, but, you know, where that is going as far as things like agent-based modeling and simulation, combining those techniques. And then we've talked to a lot of the people in the hardware space, building the architecture for a lot of these systems. Um, so it's been really, really exciting to meet amazing people. So I will definitely, next time I'm up in Pittsburgh, I'll coordinate our schedules and uh, make sure we grab a bite or say hello, worst case scenario. Oh, I hope I can get you to a Steelers game. It's not easy because the home games have been sold out since then. I know. I know. Thankfully, having been, you know, our family been there since the 60s, 70s, uh, we do have a lot of family friends in Pittsburgh that have got season tickets. So I'm always uh, banging on their door to figure out how we can get to a game. Maybe we could uh, join and uh, check it out across the street. So that'd be great. Well, thanks for the opportunity to be here. Thanks so much, Professor. Take okay. care. We'll talk soon. Bye.